Hey there, and welcome to Time for Chai, the podcast series where leaders in manufacturing, commodities, risk, supply chain management, and digital technology come to share truly actionable insight based on real-world experiences. I'm your host, Jake Jacobs, Head of Growth at Chai. So on today's episode, I'm joined by Robert Fig, which I'm really, really excited about. Now, Robert is one of the go-to authorities on commodity risk management and training. He's honed his wisdom over more than 40 years in the markets. And what's really interesting with Robert is that he's got very deep experience in different areas of the market. As a director at Scotia Capital, head of commodity risk in the Treasury front office with ArcelorMittal, the world's largest steel company, where he was head of commodity risk management, and with the London Metal Exchange, where he was head of physical market sales. Robert is a leader in best practice education for commodity risk management and has been relied upon by the enemy to provide their global bespoke training. He is now Managing Director of Commodity Risk Management and Training and also a partner of the Metal Risk team. Welcome, Robert. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. Robert, given your many years of experience, you've obviously been through volatile markets such as the current one that we're in. How does this compare to 08 or the Asian financial crash, for example, from a commodities risk management standpoint? I think uh, there are lots of similarities that emerge. I think one of the key elements uh, here has been that banks have been very nervous about extending credit to clients and in many ways have uh, tried to get industrial companies to extricate themselves from their hedging positions. And we've got a problem here because these black swan events happen occasionally. And, you know, during the good times, banks are looking to get their, uh, get as many customers as possible. But one of the outcomes of the 2008-9 crash was the legislation that was introduced to try to boost capital adequacy of banking institutions to try and stop them looking to the state purse for a bailout should things go wrong. And that has taken various iterations where banks, I think, have found that with the capital adequacy rules, it has been no longer possible for them to offer hedging tools to their customers. Remember, I'm more interested in the industrial users of the market who use it to manage risk. And what we've seen is a huge movement by many, many banks to close down their risk management operations, their commodity operations. And that has meant that the pool of liquidity has declined. And it has made it very difficult for companies to offer these services. We've seen two companies this week alone uh, announced that they're closing their what's left of their risk manage, of their hedging operations things uh, companies like ICBC Standard and Scotia Bank um, has indicated they're going to close Scotia Macata which used to be a ring dealing member of the London Metal Exchange and an LBA member in, in the bullion markets so we are seeing lots of people move away from the market so that's one issue that uh, creates a liquidity issue for those who need to use the market to manage their risk. Yeah. And so I think the the irony of the legislation that we've seen in the market since 2008 have in fact created more risk for industrial companies who cannot hedge. 
So that's one big, big issue that I have with the current state of the regulatory environment. I think uh, it also creates some nervousness amongst industrial companies as to the efficacy of risk management. And I really think that this has provided a golden opportunity for companies to who have either furloughed workers or who are working from home who don't have the, the same kind of daily routine to provide training to those people or to try and investigate whether the company has been doing the right thing or mm-hmm. training a new generation of staff as to how they should be looking at risk management. And in actual fact, after some weeks where the markets have been extremely quiet, we are now in the metals risk team have been approached by a number of companies this week. So I think there is a move at the moment to try to understand how people should manage risks in a very difficult environment. One where banks are retreating, the regulators are retreating, and companies need to find a way to implement their hedges effectively. Interesting. Very interesting opening comments. Thanks for that, Robert. Um, and, And so are there any commodities risk mitigation strategies that you're seeing kind of deployed consistently by some of your different clients right now? No, not particularly. I think, you know, hedging is not, uh, it's not rocket science. It's, It's really trying to understand what exposures you have in your company, both from a transactional perspective uh, and a strategic perspective, to try and manage those risks. And the instruments that you can use are not particularly varied. They, they, they've been there for some years. Uh, having said that, interestingly enough, we've seen two events that make uh, hedging a little bit difficult. We've seen negative pricing on in the energy markets, which is yeah. not unusual. We've seen that before. And we are seeing super contangos, particularly in the aluminium and copper markets, where the difference between today's price and a forward price has gone way out of kilter. Normally, people would try and arbitrage those differentials, but because banks are not offering credit facilities, those super contangos have emerged and and I think will continue. So there are interesting things going on. One one other uh, element is that the Black-Scholes model doesn't take into account negative pricing. And so suddenly banks and industrial companies are struggling with how they would price those models. And they've turned to a fairly obscure French mathematician who was born in the 1870s and died in 1946 uh, to look for models that uh, could, could help. But Bachelier Uh, is his name. And there's a massive scramble going on to try and understand how to manage those models. Just to make the point, negative pricing is not something new. We've had negative pricing on interest rates in Japan for the last 20 years. Mm. We've had negative pricing today in Switzerland and in Canada, where clients uh, of the market have to pay their banks to take their money. So that's negative pricing. So there have been incidents of this sort of thing. But again, the instruments remain the same and are are fairly straightforward. Interesting, really, really interesting stuff. And actually, it's interesting that you mentioned the uh, the Black Shoals uh, model. It's something that uh, my colleague, Chris Evans, the director of strategy at Chai, mentioned in his most recent blog post as well, Crisis Management. I know, obviously, you know Chris very well. Talking a bit more about negative oil, can you talk a little bit about 
the effect of negative oil on margin and valuation. Can you go into some detail around that at all? Yeah, I can only really make general comments. I think that uh, we saw the buy side very active, particularly ETF markets, very active in the oil markets. And when it came to rolling their positions forward, they left it to the last minute and basically got caught out. The real problems that my clients face in that kind of environment, let's say you're a steel company and you've hedged your oil. Well, you're naturally short of oil. So you would go long in the market to protect yourself. And we have seen a huge collapse in oil prices uh, from $60 earlier this year to in the instance uh, of the last day of the previous contract on uh, the CME, it went down to minus uh, $46 or $50. And that means that industrial users of the market have been hit very badly in those circumstances, particularly those who are short of oil or oil products. Hmm. So what has happened is, again, the banks, I think, have forced a lot of clients out of the market. And that has meant that they are sitting on uh, hedge losses. And that means their credit rating is no longer the same as it has been and mean that a lot of companies will find it difficult re-entering the market on a credit uh, line basis. They may have to be fully margined and that creates cash flow issues. Interesting, really interesting stuff. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the advice that you're actually giving your clients as well today. You know, one of the things that we really try to do with the podcast is provide well, and all the content that we provide here at Chai is, is kind of provide truly actionable insight, you know, that people can actually take away and adopt in their daily decision making. So I wonder if you could talk about what you're advising your clients to do right now. Right. Well, I think uh, the key question is, how do you deal with uh, not only events such as these catastrophic events yeah. that we see in the markets like this, but is your risk management operation uh, robust enough to deal with not only these kind of events, but day-to-day, day-to-day issues? Are you nimble enough to be able to lighten your strategic risk position, or do you hold it to expiration? What kind of policies do you have in place? What kind of training have you offered your staff? And I, I, I really urge industrial companies in particular to use this opportunity to enhance their risk management operations and to be able to respond very, very quickly in incidents like this to lift the load of risk. So, for example, those caught short in their strategic hedging on oil could have lifted their position and lightened their load, whereas often people get stuck in the headlight in the headlamps and aren't able to react uh, spontaneously, either because they have to seek board approval or their policies aren't robust enough for treasuries to take immediate action on this. So to me, this is the second time we've been granted an opportunity to live through a the worst case scenario. Yeah. And we have to learn from these things and we have to have very robust policies in place that can take these kind of issues into account. Very interesting stuff. Actually, on one of the uh, previous episodes of Time for Chai, I was talking to someone called Steve Wall, who is someone we know really well at Chai. Steve's a real guru expert on supply chain management, particularly for FMCG. 
And we were kind of talking about how the current situation is, is almost, you know, this this stress test for supply chain management. And it really feels like it's the same kind of thing for commodities risk management as well right now. You're talking about the, the test to risk management ops. That's, that's kind of a, a very interesting thing. Do you, do you agree with that? Do you think it's the same, you know, that, that kind of thing? Absolutely. I, I completely agree about the supply chain. We are seeing all sorts of problems with the supply chain. And I think that is going to take up enormous resources in, in the future because people, particularly in sourcing and procurement, will want to make sure that they have a much more scientific approach, a much more readily available kind of stockpile so that they can ensure that they don't need to shut down in difficult circumstances. If you look at the oil market, for example, Mm. shutting down oil wells will be more expensive than storing materials or finding ways of storing materials. So shutting down is not necessarily the answer. You've got to be able to provide a, a clear procurement path. And so I think that's very true. And I would say that risk management is as important as the supply chain and logistics. Again, I make the point that um, there are plenty of companies who have highly sophisticated operations, but um, there are also a lot of companies that have been very nervous about risk management because of a lack of understanding or issues where things have gone wrong in the past, where people should now really look at these issues in such a way that they can use it as a tool to their distinct advantage, particularly in difficult circumstances. Interesting, really interesting stuff. Now, earlier on in that, you know, kind of last comment, you mentioned a more scientific approach to risk management. And, you know, really at Chai, we're massive advocates, obviously, of kind of data-driven decisions. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role that you see, you know, data being able to play in effective risk management moving forward. Well, I think... uh, you know, we, we see artificial intelligence, we're seeing all sorts of new technologies being applied from the not only the sourcing of material, but also through traffic, getting material from the mine to the plant, and also very much in the sales side as well. My view is that where technology really needs to be implemented is to draw people together from procurement, sales, and the finance uh, function within a company uh, to make sure that they're not operating in in silos, but that they're operating together so that they understand the cost of production, the stock that they have in their yard, and the changes that happen to that on a constant basis, and the contracts that are, the terms of the contract, the sales contracts that people have. So, One of the lessons I really hope comes out of this this very difficult period is that the relationship between those three becomes extremely strong and people recognize that they cannot operate independently of each other. Really interesting, Robert. And I think that whenever you have a a big moment like this that is uh, really stressful and causes a lot of angst, pain, I mean, in the current climate, you know, death as well, fatalities, unfortunately, it's very difficult to sometimes step back and foresee or appreciate some of the positives, the derivatives that could come from this. And it really does feel like actually in some ways, you know, there are some silver linings to come out of all of this, people being more agile and and 
more collaborative. We've seen it at societal level. You know, the government is moving very quickly with certain things and we've seen better collaboration between government departments. Hello, I'm Stephen Butler, Chief Commercial Officer at Chai. Here at Chai, we're working hard to try and provide people like yourselves who are involved in the industry with the correct insights and data that will help you make the critical decisions in these uncertain times. If you would like to learn more about our service, please check out our company website, chai-uk.com, or follow our market updates on LinkedIn. Thank you very much, and please enjoy the show. So, yeah, it's a really interesting point you make there as well around bringing departments in businesses closer together and allowing them to kind of start working better together, which probably wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for COVID-19, maybe. I think, um, you know, there are lots of companies who actively do this and have, have built a culture around that, which I think has been very, very positive and healthy. Yeah, unfortunately, still remains in society, uh, in, in our, our world, uh, a large number of companies that still don't hedge or find, try and find way, you know, they argue that they either naturally hedged or they don't need to hedge because they understand the market or that they're a niche player and uh, the commodity exposure is quite small. I think there are lots of reasons. And I really would urge those companies to rethink and to really look at what is the risk period that they are at risk. You know, If you're shipping material from a mine to your plant yeah. and you're paying for the material when it arrives at your plant, that is your period at risk and you need to understand that. When you're making your product, you're storing it and then selling it onto your customer, you have a risk that the price goes down. So there are all sorts of risks that you really need to, to understand that there is uh, in 99% of cases, there is no natural hedge. Actually, there is a period of risk, and you need to understand that. I think companies still fear the difficulties with relation to commodity risk. While they're perfectly happy and understand the exposures that they may face in foreign exchange, the exact same risks appear in their commodity exposure, but they shy away from doing something. and. To make the point, both on the CME and the London Metal Exchange, and if you go to further east, uh, Singapore, uh, India, and, uh, and China, they are very liquid markets that people can use to do away with those risks. We don't want to interfere with companies taking risk and developing products and developing new markets. But what we do think they should do is remove the extraneous risks yeah. of foreign exchange and interest rates and, and commodities. And, you know, that's why we set up the metals risk team. We were trying to really work together collaboratively with a large number of companies to try and show them or to work with them to identify, first of all, what their risks are, and then to mitigate those risks through world-class best practice risk management techniques. And it's not just for major corporates. We do we deal with uh, small to medium-sized companies as well, where having a treasury is not an option, mm -hmm. where having a finance team may not be an option. And so we, we do from, from cradle to grave and also with small, medium and large companies. It's interesting, actually, Robert, because, you know, talking to 
uh, folk in the market who know the metals risk team and know of the work that, that you guys do. The word that I've heard handed around to describe yourselves most is kind of partners. So I think a lot of people actually see you as genuine, you know, partners who really take on board the stresses and strains that they're going through. And you don't just see it as kind of uh, a transactional service. Yeah. Uh, and the other, the other phrase that sticks out for me actually is, is trusted advisors, which I think, you know, yeah. Anyone, yeah. if you're offering a service or a product, that's the, the kind of the absolute, you know, pinnacle of a client relationship, I'd say. Yeah, I think, um, and I believe that to be the case in all, in all cases. We're not conflicted. We don't have any conflict of interest with, uh, all we're doing is, is literally trying to get to the bottom of uh, the risks that people face and then try to find the best way to deal with that. And we're very collaborative and, of course, um, you know, highly confidential work, and we never discuss that with anybody. So I, my view is that use this opportunity to at least investigate mm. these risks mm. and see how you can best deal with it. In good times, as I mentioned right at the beginning, banks can be your friends, uh, brokers can be your friends. In these times, what they're doing, and quite rightly so, is trying to look after themselves. And how do you deal with that in difficult circumstances? Are there ways of dealing with that? And how do you safeguard the credit arrangements you have and the margining of positions? I'm particularly also concerned that some institutions are asking for more initial and variation margin um, than stipulated by the clearinghouses. And that could be a problem too. And so I would urge banks and brokers to consider that area of difficulty for their customers. Sure. Okay. Interesting. Stuff. And, and I mean, do you think that they're taking that position because they're adopting kind of short-termism? They're, they're thinking about it right now. They're not thinking about the longer-term relationships that they could build based on these difficult circumstances. Yeah, I think so. I think it can be seen as bringing down the hatches, trying to protect themselves in difficult circumstances. But, you know, they are involved in risk management too. And, yeah. and so the other side of that risk management operation needs to be looked at to see if it's being used efficiently and is looking at long-term relationships with their customers. Interesting stuff. Now, earlier on, you mentioned, you said a little bit about how it's very difficult for companies, corporates to oversee effective risk management today because of remote working and things, and also to train and upskill the people in the business who are managing it on a day-to-day. Do you have any advice for those companies, those folk out there listening about how they can kind of, you know, mitigate the effects of remote working and still be very effective when it comes to risk management ops? You know, if you look at you guys, I think you've been very efficient at using technology that is available to bring your message to your clients. And I work from home and I don't see any real constraints. Um, the, the work we deliver is online. The training we deliver is online. You know, it's not quite the same as being in the same room with people, but needs must. And really, I urge people to put their stuff through training. Everybody offers, I, I offer online training. The various exchanges offer online training like the LME. And I think people should really use it. 
Absolutely. So I think it goes back to the point we made about, you know, silver linings. Perhaps this is an opportunity for folk to get more on board with actually conducting these rigorous training exercises sure. through the resources out there. Um, do you, yeah, do you have any, any other kind of resources that come to mind that you'd point people in the right direction of, obviously, it'd be great for them to get in touch with, with yourselves, but I don't know if there's anything else out there that you particularly rate highly. I think um, it is very interesting that there are very few people who offer these kind of services. And, you know, they're banks, they're brokers, they're management consultants, they're all sorts of people who potentially offer these kinds of things. I feel really that they have, to some extent, a conflict of interest. And I really do think that you need an independent source who will look at what your exposures are in a completely neutral way. And so I don't think that there are great, a great deal of out, out, you know, outlets for this sort of thing, but I do think that people should investigate it. I don't think we are the only people in the world who do it, but I think we certainly one of very, very few. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that goes back to the point you know, that we made earlier about being trusted advisors mm -hmm. and genuinely caring about the outcomes for your customers. Yes. Really interesting stuff. So one other comment you made earlier was around uh, companies not hedging and you know, not adopting hedging as a, a strategy for mitigating commodities risk in particular. Why do you think that that is? Do you think it's just a case of head in the sand, they, they don't want to know because it's so complex or they don't feel like they've got enough access to insights and data? You know, why, why do you think that is? There are a large number of reasons for it. It could be that um, it's, you know, it's just outside of the company culture where uh, uh, people have just not wanted to adopt something that perhaps the board and senior management may not understand. So that's one area. I think also, historically, people have seen it as speculative activity. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I really argue against very, very strongly. You know, when you are, the idea is that hedging is counterbalancing your risk. So you have a procurement risk or a sales risk, and hedging is all it's trying to do is to counterbalance that risk. It's mm. not uh, hedging is not a profit or loss center. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people see it as such. I think another reason is people feel that the markets are very volatile. They get on with their business and suddenly the world markets go haywire because there's speculative elements in the market. Well, um, that may or may not be true, but it still affects your underlying exposure to those commodities and to your customers. So you can't ignore that relationship. I think there are a lot of reasons. I think for me, all of them are erroneous and need to be challenged and people need to get over their fear of, of managing these risks. And it will add tremendously to the company's ability to continue producing the products that they do uh, without having to worry about the commodity risks involved. Really interesting stuff. So Rob, I think so far we've spoken quite a lot about, you know, how risk management is going to change perhaps off the back of the current climate. But I wonder if you could talk about some of the longer term consequences that you foresee with regard to the LME specifically. I think there are a number of uh, issues here that um, are very positive, mostly, and a couple of potential negative issues that need to be flagged. The most positive element is that what happened in, in Cushing last week and on the CME's oil contract, the WTI contract, 
I don't think can happen on the LME. Mm. Uh, and the reason for that is that there is huge capability for storage. There are many, many storage sheds that are not LME registered at the moment that could be. So there's plenty of space for storage of excess material. I think um, it is also perhaps interesting that the contracts on the London Metal Exchange on, on ferrous metals are cash settled. And so that, again, is unlikely to lead to any kind of issue. And I think that's to the LME's advantage. So I'm, I'm hoping that we will see uh, more and more people using the LME under these circumstances, because I think they present an opportunity for the, uh, for, for the market. The area where I think the market needs to be very wary of is the number of people who are leaving the market because of uh, capital adequacy rules under Basel. And I think that has shown to be completely inadequate under the current circumstances. And that's why I think they're sort of backed away from some of the rules that have existed. And I think the industry who uses the exchanges like the LME should really lobby government to be much more aware of the risks that they face and what they're trying to do to mitigate those risks. I think, uh, you know, they may argue that it's the buy side that has forced them to implement these rules. Well, there's a balance that needs to be struck between those who are using the market. I've seen lots of discussions recently about trying in France and elsewhere where people are talking about banning short selling. Yeah. Well, you can't ban short selling if you're a, a mining company or yeah. you're somebody who's long of metal but needs to protect themselves against a falling market. Mm. That's an entirely legitimate use of a market to protect yourself. And so, you know, th there needs to be an understanding of what's going on here. And I think often the regulators sometimes lack that understanding and need to be, the exchanges need to lobby them a little bit more efficiently, I think. So that's, that's an issue for the future. I do believe that um, uh, the capital adequacy rules, which have obviously gone out the window, yeah. uh, given the amount of quantitative easing that we have seen in the last uh, eight weeks or so, has created a very difficult situation. And banks and brokers are now doubly worried about their capital adequacy and have to find ways around that. That creates problems. And as I said, we've seen the consequence of that over the last 18 months with a large number of banks pulling out of the commodity markets, offering commodity services to their clients. That creates all sorts of problems. As I said, ironically, it means that people can't hedge. So that's yeah. creating risk. But also liquidity um, issues are at stake here. So. I wonder just you know, to round off, if you've got any other insight, advice, pearls of wisdom that you'd like to share with us <laughs> at all? Well, um, I think um, this is completely unprecedented. All of these events, the depth of this sort of event has been pretty shocking. My view is I would like to see a progressive lifting of the lockdowns. I, I think they are now becoming counterproductive. Obviously, we've got to protect old and vulnerable people like myself, but um, uh, gen generally speaking, I think the economy uh, needs to be seen as, you know, that it has to be uh, brought back into alignment because if it's not, 
none of this can be paid for. So uh, the more it goes, the, the lengthier time it takes to get out of this, uh, the more difficult it will be for the world economy. So uh, my view is that that needs to start happening. And I think people are not quite as shocked into uh, sort of a lack of activity. I think, as I said, I mentioned earlier, we, we've seen quite a plethora of new potential clients uh, coming in in the last week or two. Yeah. I think they've been forced into it because of inactivity. They still face the same risks. They still face their banks putting them, their credit lines and margining, creating those kind of difficulties. And suddenly people are feeling that they need to be prepared for when this lifts. So I would say to people, use this time wisely and um, really try and get to get to grips with what exposures you have and what the best way of dealing with it is. Excellent stuff. Brilliant. Well, I would strongly advise anyone out there listening, if they've got any questions or queries about commodities risk management, risk management, the LME, or indeed if they just want a genuine trusted partner for tough times who will actually stand by them, I'd strongly advise you to get in touch with the Metals Risk Team and, and Robert. The website to find the Metals Risk Team is themetalsriskteam.com or alternatively you can reach out to me, jake at chai-uk.com and I would be very happy to put you in touch with Robert and the team. Robert, thank you very much for coming on today. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Jake. I also appreciate your, uh, your interest. Thank you. So that's it for today. As always, please do get in touch if you feel like you've got something different to say and you'd like to come on the podcast as a future guest. If you've also got any themes, topics, or people you'd like us to interview in future episodes, again, let me know. My email address is jake at chai-uk.com. If you enjoyed Time for Chai, I'd really appreciate it if you'd subscribe to the podcast and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Today's podcast was produced by Alejandro Giron of Giron & Co Podcasting Services. Special thanks to my colleagues Stephen Butler, Chris Evans and Marcus Dixon. It was written and hosted by myself, Jake Jacobs. Have a great week. See you next time.